When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From his original review, Roger Ebert wrote, All of these elements in All the President's Men are to be praised, and yet they don't quite add up to a satisfying movie experience. Once we've seen one cycle of investigative reporting, once Woodward and Bernstein have cracked the first wall separating the break-in from the White House, we understand the movie's method. We don't need to see the reporting cycle repeated several more times just because the story grows longer and the source is more important. For all of its technical skill, the movie essentially shows us the same journalistic process several times as it leads closer and closer to an end we already know. The film is long, and it would be dull if it weren't for the wizardry of Pakula, his actors and technicians. What saves it isn't the power of narrative, but the success of technique. Still considering the compromises that could have been made, considering the phony newspaper movie this could have been, maybe that's almost enough. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me is a man who known for a very, 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 very long time in this uh, here biz. Um, he's a friend. You can hear him on ABC Radio. He does a stack of spots. You can see him on ABC News. He is a bit of a TV guru, really. You've seen him write about TV and film at ABC Arts and Junkie, Birth Movies Death, and he's just done a really fun column on his own personal website, popcornjunkie.com, um, called Too Much TV. And I absolutely agree. There is too much. Uh, Here's my dear friend. It's Mr. Cam Williams. Cam, welcome along to the 13th, lucky number 13th minute of All the President's Men. So when are they going to um, do an All the President's Men TV series? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the natural progression, right? Because they're getting they're going to make like a prequel of Chinatown or whatever. And so I think, yeah, we may be entering this period of time where all these films from the seventies are becoming TV series. Okay. Uh, as you know, the, the content churn happens, dude. Um, but- there's All the President's Men. There's the Final Days. There's the Last of the President's Men. There's like there's so much Bob Woodward and Bernstein, but then it bleeds into just Woodward content that you know you can see them skewering this thing so badly but actually yeah, now, now that you said you know the the chinatown uh, the chinatown prequel robert town coming out to do that mank is coming out and really you know the the bill goldman disciples of you know that i know that you are very aware of with aaron sorkin and david fincher you know maybe if netflix could coerce them they could uh they could sort of bring bring this to life as an enduring you know throwback political series like long obsessive political series with those two guys at the helm yeah that could work and you know like Considering the runtime of this film as a TV series, it has to be like eighty hours long because <laughs> they need to, they need to sustain it. So you know that's the thing. Everyone complains that you know 
films have these long running times. It's like, ah, you're sitting through a 10-hour TV series. So anyway, I, I keenly anticipate the All the Presidents <laughs> and television adaptation or even even some kind of series that follows Bernstein and Woodward at uh, university maybe, getting their degrees or, you know, those early days, finding out how they got the hunger to become reporters. Um, there's so much potential here. Um, if this does happen, um, please send all the hate mail to Blake. <laughs> no, please don't. And I and it's so funny that you said that about like the eight. There's so many people who've gone, you know, oh, what was the last good movie you saw? Oh, I saw The Irishman. It was great. You know, and they're like, oh, that was really long. And I'm like, yeah, like long, you know, good movies. You know, I just did a minute by minute podcast that of a movie that was 166 minutes long. And I could basically tell you unequivocally that there's not a wasted minute. So yep. good movies uh, can endure. And then like, nah, I'm not into it. Have you seen the flash? And I'm like, that's 24 <laughs> episodes a season. It's like seven seasons. I okay, You've watched that, the flash for like 150 hours. Like relax. Yeah. And uh, usually when people, and usually when people give you those recommendations, they go, oh, and it only just gets good in season six. So like, you're like, wait a second. Like it only just gets good that late. And it's it, like, what were you doing before that? It better get good in the first hour. Like, I don't care if it's a 30 minute episode, 20 minute episode, you know, some of the best telly I watched last year, um, you know, I, I binged on Fleabag. I was be- very well behind on Fleabag. And I reckon in the first three minutes of that show, it was mm. completely, it was completely taken with it. Um, I, I've, I've been uh, completely taken um, with, I think it's dead to me, which is the Christina Applegate show. Like right, on Netflix. Yep, yep. first end of their first episode of the series, like a ripper, you know, I, I think if you can't, if you can't catch people in a first episode these days, like you literally, you know, your, your words, exactly. It's just too much. You can't expect mm. people to keep going because if they're curating their own time and it doesn't grab you almost immediately, it's like, see you later. I can't, I do not yeah. have time for this in my life. Yeah. But killer segue time, 13 minutes into all the president's men, Pretty well hooked oh, already. Yeah, abs- <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, you are uh, lucky. Number thirteen is not wrong. It is not just the the phrase. If this movie didn't already tantalise and have its hooks in you with just little these little beautiful little morsels of information and 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 aesthetic and you know really feeling immersed, you get you literally get the oh shit moment. The holy shit. <laughs> the Woodward mm. chewing on a pen. James McCord revelation of he works for the CIA bomb drop. Um, let's 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 rip right in. Let's watch the minute. There's so much to talk about. Um, and Cam and I always have fun when we talk about it. And look, there's just so much corduroy. So I can't wait to get into this minute with you, Cam. <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to it. So guys, you guys are going to listen along. Um, it's the 13th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 undeniable journalistic masterpiece. All the presidents met. Um, inspired by the Woodward and Bernstein novel of the same name. Um, it is 12 minutes on the dial, wherever you're watching, whether you're watching on iTunes, whether you're watching on the Blu-ray or the DVD, there is one version. Um, other, The only difference between the original theatrical version and this version is the change in the Warner Brothers logo at the beginning. So you've got no chance of being on a different uh, version of this one. So uh, check it out and uh, have a listen, and we're going to come back and talk about it. Where in government? Central Intelligence Agency. Where? The uh, CIA. Sturgis, Frank A, salvage operator. Holy shit. 10 minutes. 
Junio Martinez, uh, known as Gene Valdez, James W. McCord, alias Edward Martin, Frank Sturgis, alias Frank Fiorini. All, all the five of the men had at least one alias. Is there any proof they were trying to bug the National Democratic Chairman? The thing is, obviously, they were trying to bug O'Brien. They wouldn't go all that trouble to bug secretaries. No, there's no proof. Well, wait a minute. Uh, I called a lawyer in Miami. I know he said four of the, of the guys that were arrested were from Miami. Gonzalez, Martinez, Sturgis, and... Uh, Barker. Yeah, Barker. And all four of them were involved in CIA activities mm -hmm. and uh, they all yeah and they no, all had one no only one of them was admitted CIA and the CIA won't confirm that in fact they deny even knowing McCord yeah but I just think it's obvious that with all that money and equipment they weren't out to, to uh, you know to work by themselves they were not out to work by themselves with all that equipment great little minute yeah the um Redford's acting in that scene where he's just his eyeballs are going left to right and he's chewing on that pen and he's kind of really um selling the moment um, when, you know, he's in that, the way that we kind of see the way that the court's presented and with, with so many backs to him, yes, um, the decision to kind of just focus on his face um, rather than shoot that scene from different angles to kind of really make it a moment um, because we, we know kind of real in real life that it really wasn't a moment. You know, this was like local news. This was more like local news in Washington um, and I had recently listened to um, the excellent, excellent first season of the podcast Slow Burn, which covers the Watergate scandal. Yes. And it's really fascinating. A lot of journalists that they get on that podcast to discuss what happened um, at the time were um, like cadet reporters and real low-level staff who were actually sent to these, um, to these proceedings to cover the case because nobody thought anything of it. Yes. Um, so something that, you know, I really love in the opening minutes of this film is just how um, casual everything is and how they really do treat everything like it, it kind of sort of was. Um, because I think the toughest thing about going into a film like this is that you have in your mind, um, especially I guess people of our generation, Blake, who spent years and years here, with, you know, it, it's like certified history. We know the story. We know the legend. You know, we're kind of, you know, for years I kind of didn't really understand what actually happened at Watergate. Um, you yeah, know, I you just, just assumed it was it's, a scandal. It's pervasive. Like, it's in the cultural lexicon. Mm. You know the general players. You know the gist. You know that reporting took down the president. But, like, for a long time, you're like, what – like I remember actually asking like to to get the clarification. I was in school at the time. I was like, "What? What is Watergate?" Like I know what. Yeah. Like I know what happened. That they reported that the president, like the the president, was responsible on spying on the uh, an opposing political party at the time, and obviously then had a more refined opinion and understanding of it later. But I was like, "What is Watergate? Like what the hell is it?" Yeah. Like. But I knew what Watergate was, and I knew what I knew the word. Yeah. I knew I knew I knew what it inferred. I knew like the suffix that has now become dominant in, in, in sort of our culture. But um, yeah, like it's, it's, I, I, there is such a great decision of sticking the audience right with Woodward's experience of this entire undertaking. Mm. And if, if you yeah. make the, there's a great scripting choice and there's a great character choice. And like, I know this is going to sound weird because I'm going to take a, like a real populist tangent, but it's the difference between looking at something like one of the first couple of Harry Potter movies, like a really accomplished director, Chris Columbus does those movies and he's trying to, he's trying to do everything for everyone and every character. And then the third one has like a real distinct, unique voice by Alfonso Cuaron who comes in and goes, no, these movies, the title's called Harry Potter. The whole film should be about the central character and everyone else mm. is, everyone else is filler. And so I think that there's this great moment 
in this film and it happens with both reporters because they've got this dual perspective of the entire thing to go, I am going to focus exclusively on their experience and their understanding and their awakening. And right now, because he's completely in the dark, we're in the dark. Mm. And his oh shit moment is our oh shit moment. And when he's looking around for someone to validate his oh shit moment, there's no one there except us. We are with yeah. him. And, and because the rest of the court, and I love there's a guy in the preceding minutes, um, as we mentioned on a couple of the episodes, there's this really relaxed, like African American guy in the background wearing this like cool black turtleneck, very seventies, and he looks so relaxed because he's probably bailing out a mate, or you know, <laughs> yeah. like he's been he's down at district court because his mates got drunk or something, and he's just coming in to bail him out. He's probably been there before. He might even be like a, a one of those assistants to a bail bondsman or something, and he just looks like he's so cruisy. He looks like me sitting on my couch on a Sunday. Like he's just as mm. relaxed as it gets. And here, like you said, this is just par for the course. This is a burglary. No one's making anything of it. And then when you start to hear, you know, anti-communist, oh, you know, work for the Central Intelligence Agency, and like we can't hear it, Woodward can't hear it. It's just. It's just magnificent. And exactly to your point, there's so many other, I don't know, like you see it a lot because you watch a hell of a lot of TV as well. It's like that, the the stylistic flurry that that is so, um, it's almost like sycophantic. They're trying to show you how much style they have as a filmmaker, as a director with aesthetic. And then you get someone who's like a true visionary, like a Pacula, and he's like, no, we're going to hold right on his face. Because it's the mm. most important thing to telling this story is his experience, and it's not about the flash, and it's not about the how can we make this more dynamic. It's what we need to that will come later. The moods and yeah. the tones will all come later. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. So I actually like when you when you're watching all the presidents, man, you really have to kind of like unpick your brain because knowing you know knowing how the story ends unless you have curiosity around what was actually happening or, or whatever, it's kind of like you, you really want to try and put yourself in that mindset of like piecing this puzzle together. Yes. Um, and then kind of looking for, yeah, looking for that artistry and how they do that in this story. So to get that, to, you know, to get red and I, something about Redford's performance in this film that struck me revisiting again was, I kind of, I kind of described it as like one of his more kind of like youthful, reserved performances. Yeah. Because I think we always think of Redford as this like, oh, this you know great you know seventy cinema and all this kind of stuff. Where I think his performance in the film, he really gets across how kind of I guess young Woodward was and how green he was at this job, but also that hidden hunger that he has. And we hear them talk a lot about that throughout the the rest of the film when the editors are kind of fighting over whether they're the right person, he's the right person to write about this, et cetera, et cetera. Jack but, Warden. Don't you need a Jack Warden as Harry Rosenfeld in your corner, like constantly. He's like, they were hungry. They were hungry, yeah. Howard. You remember when you were hungry? Freaking yeah. Shooting. And so, yeah, and so like, I, it's really interesting. Like with this film, All the President's Men, it's just like, I guess it's held in such high esteem and I guess, you know, history, you know, it's covering such like one of the biggest stories in history and all this kind of stuff that like when you watch the film, you're kind of expecting, you're kind of expecting that, right? But it's such a lo-fi movie in so many different ways. And I think the scene with Redford reacting to overhearing CIA mentioned is such a really great example of how, um, how so much of this film is like, 
these tiny little whispers and things like that that, that get then get written down that then turn into like this paper trail. Um, and it, yeah, it's something that I just, I love about it. Also something that struck me about this film kind of from this minute onwards is that, you know, so much of this film is carried by vocal performances, which is like, you know, lots of voices off screen, lots of voices on phone. Yes. Um, lots of, and you know, I think that, you know, it's one of those things where you're watching this film, you're like, oh, yeah, there's, like, so many great performances and big acting and, you know, it's such a great, huge film. And then you're like, oh, they're on the phone a lot. <laughs> and a lot of the, and a lot of the, a lot of the most vital information in this film, even things that, that lead them to the next clue is, you know, it's all done by these actors who are just kind of doing these casual phone conversations. Um, and it's really interesting because I wonder if, like, another director would have actually shot all of those people, you know, would have actually shot those phone calls and cut between the journos ringing them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, it's you know, a, It's a massive testament, I think, to the vision, right? Like, it's the vision mm. of Redford being a producer on this film, knowing that Alan Pakula is the guy that he wanted for the role for the same sort of tonal things that he brings to it. But it's like, it's just a decision that I guess you and I have covered and been around filmmaking and filmmakers for long enough to know that like if you sat a number of different filmmakers or directors or DOPs around when they were conceiving of how this would be structured, you'd probably get 50-50 to say we want to shoot the phone calls or some mm. of them. You know, we, wa- we want to shoot certain phone calls or we may not want to show their faces, but we want to show them when they're getting the calls. We want to show those things because, you know, there are those – you, you know, in this movie, there's a great one of like Redford being in bed and getting the phone call and like waking up. Like that's how he's introduced yeah. as a character. So I think it's like that. Some of them want to say it, but then again, that whether it's Goldman's script, whether it's that understanding, it's like there's that, you know, and I know you're a fan of this guy as well, but Drew McWeeney is a terrific um, film mind. Uh, and recently on another One Heat Minute Productions podcast on Increment Vice, he talked about ex- expository filmmaking so people like speaking talking delivering information and experiential filmmaking and i think this film is like the collision of those two things right because there's Mm. so much information that's being passed but it's not at the expense of the experience of the process of these guys doing it and sort of this is the kickoff of that entire mode this is saying this is how we're going to tell you this story it's going to be through these guys experiencing it right now we are giving you your holy shit moment and it's going to be in half past conversations and it's going to be in details that people don't think that are important and it's going to be in processes and all this other stuff. But right now is like a, it's like a cataclysmic moment in the movie where it's like, this is what's happening. And yeah. And then, and then you've got the, um, the, the rush to get this down. Right. And something that, you know, viewing this film, I guess from, from the distance of 2020, it's like, you get this anxiety from, okay, you hear something like that. Like, okay, you hear what's being said in the courtroom. And then, you know, you know, he, even him with the pen in his mouth, it's like at the ready for him to take, you know, to get those notes down. But then it's that rush to kind of get everything on record yes. um, because they don't have that, you know, they're, they're not using this, they're not using any digital technology. So I think even- Isn't that unimaginable? Like imagine, yeah, imagine yeah, you and I, like, so imagine, you, you know, Cam and I uh, kicked off a little website together called Graffiti with Punctuation, but just imagine like an editorial relationship, you know, if I was covering something or whatever, 
and or, or got a story or got a scoop and I thought that it was good, like we could instantly call each other. We could instantly text. Like even mm. if it was in the middle of the day and we're both doing other stuff, you could instantly text. You could draw something up even on the like notes of your phone and share it or whatever, like flick it in an email. Hey, man, I've like half done this. Can you take a look? Whatever. But that's not happening here. It's like I, I love about this next sequence. Um, we get this beautiful triangle of people and body language and and it's just this great like you're so desperate to get it down on the record but you kind of need this like protection of like these cynical fact checker people that pressure test every every kind of moment that you have in constructing the story because you get yeah. to see here Bernstein on one side you know like the beginning of the it's about 20 seconds into the minute um uh, 22 seconds really redford's nursing a uh, nursing the notepad and he's sort of reading out all the names of the burglars he's reading out where they came from and their aliases describing the different aliases and then you know harry asks the big question which is are they actually trying to bug the chairman and mm. bernstein's inference is yeah it's obvious that they're trying to bug the chairman and harry's editorial team are like no it's not where is it? Mm. Like, were they in his office? No, they got yeah. caught before they did that. <laughs> you know, like it's, and, and he's like, oh, it's obvious. It's it's a, it's one of those great things that later on in this movie, as they're sort of building this picture, there's a couple of wonderful exchanges and this is kind of a prototype. Oh, and they were all involved in CIA activities. Well, no, they weren't because mm. the CIA have only acknowledged one person and they haven't given us any firm comment on it. Like this is, it's on court record, but it's not on the record, so to speak. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I love the contrast of these minutes, Hol uh, the, the two halves of this minute, actually, holy shit moment. But then exactly as you were just starting to say, which is like, then now it's the scrutiny, the agonizing long scrutiny of facts and like holding it back and making it watertight for hitting it up. Yeah, and, and also how um, they're really establishing the mechanics of the newsroom and how it works so that, you know, as the audience, if you know nothing about how a newspaper runs, you can start to understand how, you know, they're, they're sending off reporters to cover different things and they're bringing back their notepads and then you kind of get this committee of people that are kind of weighing in on um, whether there's, you know, a story there or not. Um, and weirdly about all the presidents, man, I think this like the first or second time I watched this film when I was probably like a teenager, um, all the kind of editorial staff at the Washington post in this film who, you know, are constantly scrutinizing everything along the way, knowing kind of the might of this story in history. I kind of viewed those guys as, as like, almost like secondary villains in this story. Cause I was always like, I was always like, Oh, these dumb dumbs. They don't know anything about this. It's the story of the century. They're sitting on it. It's like, these guys are like just getting in the way. And I think the more and more you watch this film and the more you kind of understand the way that the media works and the way that journalists work and you kind of, you know, all that stuff, you kind of begin to understand like how flimsy the story that Woodward has is in the very beginning. Yes. And just how gung ho him and Bernstein is and you know even like the first time we ever see Bernstein um like one of my favorite shots early in this film um and in a minute that you've already covered is just him standing in the doorway drinking like a of like a foam cup of coffee yes and it's just and so immediately you go that guy's like a, he's he's a lingerer he's the kind of guy that just like hangs around the boss's door it's always eavesdropping on people. He's snooping on other people's stories and things like that. And we get to see that in, in, in future minutes as well. Um, but I kind of just love that side of the film 
and kind of the way it just really shows how green these guys were and that the fact that, yeah, the story they have, it's like in the very beginning, it's just, it's a, it's such a crap story and it's just, they, they're just not really doing their jobs that great. And so the more and more you watch it, the more you realize that like the Ben Bradley and all these guys that are coming in and just ripping this story to shreds, you know, they're the guys that are protecting them from, you know, the danger of publishing too early, which I think, you know, thinking about this movie now, the reason why it stands up is I think now, especially in news, it's just like everyone is in such a rush to hit publish on stories that it's even not, if you do have, it's like, yeah. it's like a shock. Like, yeah. Well, even if you do you have something have now, <laughs> yeah. You don't, and like even, and, you know, and I think I think we're starting to realize like the danger of that, and how a lot of a lot of news yes. organizations making themselves really vulnerable by you know having a lot of stuff, but they just don't have the whole story. And I think you know, with all the president's men in these early minutes, um, thinking about just how crap this story is that they have, <laughs> and and then yeah, over time as you get older, you realize that yeah, this editorial stuff. They're scrutinizing them. They're picking them to pieces because they're protecting them and the paper from potentially, you know, the blowback. And you can imagine, like, imagine if they started to write up this story as it was, as they had it, and just how insane it would would come across as. It'd almost be like the rantings of like a kind of, you know, like a, a left wing kind of lunatic. It's saying, called you know, the modern. CIA it's called and- the modern. 4chan user is basically what is basically how it would come out because yeah you start to build up stories without any sort of facts and i think it's like it's there's this the great thing of like obviously it's journalistic process but it's the same thing that the you, you want when the story goes out you want it to be bulletproof like you want nothing about that story to be scrutinized in a negative way from the public you want the public to have all the facts and be empowered all of it and then it's like if it's targeting a specific de- democratic party, um, like if it's targeting a specific democratic party, then it's like, uh, oh, sorry, democratic party or Republican party. It's, it has to, you know, is the onus is then on them to respond to that. They have to like give you the adequate response. So no, I just, I, I love, I love that. I love the difference between the sort of let's ratchet it up and turn it into this thing where these four guys who are operatives of the CIA are trying to bug the democratic office to like pump the brakes there, Sparky. Like, yeah, it's not the story. Like it might be the story, but you don't have yeah. it. And I, that's, you know, there are lines that are going to get said over and over again in this podcast. And there are lines that I think that are going to be mantras for me going on as a host of this podcast, but as just an absolute Uber fan of this film is, you know, you don't have it. And I think about that for my own work sometimes, like in the middle of a review, I'm like, you don't have it, put it down for a bit. It needs to sit there for a mm. bit. You don't have it yet. Like th- that's not ready to hit send or hit publish. Um, you don't have it. And it's like, why? And like, like trying to percolate on exactly what's not there. And, and I think here these, I, I love how you pitch the like, these dummies didn't know what they had. Like, that's so <laughs> true. It's so funny. Cause like you totally have that opinion, but then when you're a little bit older, I think that's a young man's game like or a young woman's game too, of like that m- more rush to hit. And, and especially in like, in the context of like the last decade of like scoopla, get it out, hit publish. There's nowhere near the ramifications for a rumor or the ramifications for a misguided publishing like in, in, in the last 10 years, really there's kind of nothing. Whereas like the print media, I think that's the, the, um, uh, and the more reputable online publications now, obviously too, really, you know, live and die by their integrity. 
Yeah. Um, can we talk for a sec about um, so thinking about the Washington Post? Like running the Washington Post is like such a like just such a tough thing because yeah. you've got to cover Washington from a national perspective, but also it still operates like a local paper. So it's the local paper. Yeah, it's the lo- so the fact that you know they sent Woodward off to this to like look into what was going on like they weren't sending him off going oh this is a national story it was a local story yep. and so that that kind of few and just just how fascinating that is for a newspaper to operate that way um because you know, in, in oz like what would that be would that be the canberra times yeah the canberra times and like you know that's you know that's a pretty bare bones paper because yeah, you know they else. kind of just yeah, it's kind of like, you know, they do the local stories in there, but, you know, most of the national stuff is it's, just, it's just it's coming out of the press gallery. Yeah, it's the yeah. press gallery. It's in The Age in Melbourne and in the Herald in, in Sydney yeah, and Australian. Yeah. yeah, but it, yeah, so the fact that, yeah, the fact that it goes from being this local, this low-level local story only given to like cadet reporters to who stumble into a national story, yes. which I think in the you know in the in the split side of the this minute is where kind of like we're beginning to see the the kind of rumblings of how this story is going to go from local to national and the way that it's passing the hands of the different editorial desks. And even early on in the film, there are some people you kind of see in these meetings that you never really see again, but you kind of just like, Oh, because they're not at that level, you know, they're, they're not going to go up the chain. And, and so you then start to, yeah, I just, something I just really love about the the beginning of this film is just how lo-fi everything is and how unassuming everybody is about what's, what's really going on, which is really hard as an audience because you just know in your brain that it's like they're sitting on like the story of the century and there's that there's that really frustrating tension between whether you kind whether as a filmmaker you kind of just go over the top with everything and make these guys look super mega heroic or you kind of more play to something a little bit more authentic and take people on that journey of what that experience is like, which is what I think you get with this film. Yeah, it's 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 totally the there is no hero factor. There's no like they've been gifted this journalistic prowess from on high. They're in the grind and they're going to be, mm. and they're passionate, but their passion has to be harnessed into like execution. Mm. Like I'll do it. I will say though, the only hero in this film though is the shine coming off Dustin Hoffman's mane <laughs> of hair, which I can only assume was washed during the production of this film with horse shampoo. Um, <laughs> just, just, just an incredible mane of hair, um, which when you think about it, Redford's blonde, you know, his blonde hair is just so iconic. But in this film, you know, for Hoffman to go, you know what? If we're going to be equals, I can't match you in height, but I can match you in hair. Hey, hey, it's hey. kind of incredible. Hey, hey. I'll, I'll flex with my hair. What I can't flex with my height, <laughs> I'll flex with my hair and I'll flex with my my ticks and my smoking. And yeah, he, he said, and, and it's really just staggeringly shocking that his hair looks that good and looks like it smells good. I know that's really weird to say. Yeah. It, looks, it looks like it smells good despite the fact that you know he smokes 30 cigarettes a day at least and you're like, yeah. his hair would smell awful. So he would have to shampoo and condition it nicely every night to get it smelling good in the beginning of the day. But no, it's a, it's a beautiful mane. And like right now I've got this paused in my home at like 22 seconds. 
into the minute we're watching. And it's just, the main has never looked better. Like it's just, it's, yeah, like, it's incredible. It's, 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 it's wonderful. And there's a couple of moments where he's running in this movie too. Like, especially when he's dragging Sally Aitken through the office and it's flowing in there. And I don't know whose hair looks better, whether it's Dustin or whether it's Sally. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's some incredible stuff. So do we, so do we think that, cause I know Hoffman is known to do a lot of improv, Mm. In scenes, and he does, and he purposely does things to throw people off. Which I think, in in other minutes in this film, there are certainly scenes within all the presidents' men. Now knowing that, I can you can kind of pick up on what those scenes are later in the film. But I'm really interested to kind of do a bit more research, and I was wondering if you could shed some light on this. Mm. As to like, I wonder how many of these scenes where they're just just having office conversations and things like that, the balance between how much was scripted and how much was like they were just given notes and they just kind of improv. Because the conversational tone of these scenes very much, it just feels like they were given a little bit more freedom to kind of improvise to make it a bit more authentic rather than just being so heavily scripted. Yeah, I think there's two massive things there. Um there's a All the President's Men documentary. I think it's called All the President's Men Revisited. I think you can check it out on YouTube, but it's definitely on the Blu-ray version of, of the film. And, if you, and when you buy it digitally, um, you can see it on there too. So the first thing is Bill Goldman's script, all except for one scene, which is a leftover of Nora Ephron's um, thing. Like there's a, some great internet boffins and I will try and put it in the description. I'm just going to make a note for myself, like the, um, the sort of script research guy online put the what is like the shooting the final Bill Goldman shooting script of the movie before they said, you know, there was a little bit of revisionist history that said that, you know, Redford and Pacula like updated a whole bunch of stuff in it and essentially rewrote the script. But there's a final version because Bill Goldman as a screenwriter and as a writer was really thorough with his drafts that if you look at basically one of the final drafts, it's almost all there on the page. Like it's it's pretty damned incredible. There's one wow. massive thing. Um, there's a few tweaks now and then, but there's one massive thing that makes it feel more organic. And this was a acting decision by both guys is that Redford and Hoffman in every scene that we're in, they're in together, they memorized each other's lines. And so uh. there's a major thing that happens in this movie where they will literally sometimes talk over one another, start half a sentence that the other person's going to have or continue on another sentence or whatever. And you see it in a couple of great scenes. And it's just so that they were so aware of what the other person was doing that they could have the agility in a scene just because they're both very talented to like let someone take a line yep. in the middle of a conversation, especially when they're scrutinizing uh, or, inter- you know, scrutinizing something together and they're interrogating someone, you know, pass you know, softly. And so there's this great organic, like, I literally know what you're going to say. And there's sometimes I feel like that when I talk to people like you, I've known for a long time, Cam, it's like we're, we're on the same wavelength. So you just sometimes finish one another's se- sentences and it just works out to perfection. So there's that, absolutely. And um, I spoke to a really legendary American filmmaker who has, has sort of worked across a whole bunch of films without sort of being a breakout individual director himself, but worked on a whole bunch of directorial teams called uh, Tom King for One Heat Minute. And Tom was part of the Oscar-winning Kramer versus Kramer directorial team. I think he was a second unit director, like best direction um, or first unit or first AD. And he talked about working with Hoffman. And like Hoffman, he said he gets warmed up after, you know, he's, he's starting to warm up after six takes. So I think mm-hmm. the, the way that these guys organically make a scene really work is just in the rhythms of the scene and they'll find the warm-up. They'll find that and having the patience to find the right 
the right tone. But um, definitely, if you guys um, uh, uh, want to reach out, it's one Blake Minute on Twitter. It's at Mr. Cam W. If you guys are listening to this episode and you've heard some uh, great stuff or you've uh, there's been a great interview that you want to point us in the direction of, just tag us on the Twitter um, and we'll definitely pick it up and I'll, and I'll definitely mention it on another show that we're talking about. But, yeah, I think that whole decision, the, the, the organic nature, the stumbling over one another sentences is literally I know exactly what you're going to say in this next six you know, five seconds and being able to like jump on them and take over and, 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 but it, it happens in like this organized chaos. That's incredible. That's amazing. Cause I guess it's kind of like, you know, when you've got all these different people saying different things and different opinions flying around in that newsroom, it's kind of like these guys need to be on the same wavelength in order yes. to be asking the right questions at the right time. So as actors, it's, it's just such a, it's, it's such a great decision to make because, yeah, something I really enjoy about the early minutes of this film is kind of watch and is kind of watching how these guys come together to become the team that that we know that they are. Um, but you know, like I think one of my favourite um, bits is in, in is in a future minute where you get to see um, Woodward kind of put his draft in the in the in the for sub editing, and then kind of Bernstein comes over and picks it up. Um, you know, I just love, I just love all these little moments that you get of kind of how they're coming together and now knowing that they were consciously kind of doing that on purpose. I don't mind what you did, Cam. I mind how you did it. That line is so good. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes in movies we take for granted, um, the way that a screenplay or a director can kind of, and actors can kind of very subtly show us ways that people, uh, are coming together to kind of establish why they're good at what they do. Yes. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a really, that's a really tough part of the early part of all the president's men, because once you unpick your brain from all the Watergate mythology, um, and you start kind of going, okay, these are just two, these are just, I've got to take it. I've got to take these guys, how they're presented. Um, and you just kind of slowly getting to understand how they would get to a point where they were able to do what they did. Um, and I think in this film, it, they do it in really subtle ways without kind of grandstanding. You know, th- these guys aren't like, you know, people aren't going like, whoa, Bernstein <laughs> and Woodward graduated with top honors from journalism school. <laughs> like, you know, they're not like, they're not making a big deal about them. They're just like, they're just doing the shitty stories, you know, f- for what's essentially their local paper. And, you know, I, I, it's just there's something really great in these early minutes about watching that relationship build to the point where in the back half of the film, it's like breathing. It's like they're just they're on the same wavelength. They're just working so well together. You can totally understand why they were able to cut through all the bullshit and follow the paper trail and get what they needed to finally go to their editors who, who doubted them every step of the way for good reason and say, you know, we've got it. Um, and I just want to point yeah. out one thing that hasn't really been talked about in this minute. And I think you've just nailed it is that there is a, there's an absolute growth in this movie with these two guys. And I think that that's what makes it so ravenously rewatchable is that at the beginning here, you've got Woodward who's so like he, they are necessarily as a dichotomy between them. You know, they do, do mm. have different approaches, which is important, but like, I think you just pointed out is like at the beginning of this story, they're in a, they're in just a metro. They're in a metro editorial meeting right now. So this is the local paper, metropolitan section mm. of the paper meeting. Still fact checking stuff and bouncing ideas off and sort of arguing on the approach of a story. And then later on, there'll be 
you know, it'll sort of get elevated. And as Harry himself as the Metro editor with them going, hey, this is great, you know, this is the approach, and Bradley sort of saying no. And then there's a whole, like, literally the two guys themselves being able to go toe-to-toe with Bradley in an editorial meeting about what they need. And then by exactly like you said, by the end of the story, it's breathing. Like, these guys are knowing, they know what to do, and the roadblocks, that that's what I think may be teased out in future episodes is that may be part of, like, why some of those roadblocks that these guys have is so agonizing because they get good. They get really good. We know they know what they're doing. And then the the sources dry up or the or or, or something happens where they they go to they go to bat for something and they're misinformed by a source. Mm. And and the underlying information is right, but how they get it, then they have to do a bit of backpedaling. So it's just, it's there's so much that's about this, and and uh, and you never really even think about it that these guys actually grow. There's like a significant level of growth, um, uh, but you know the guys who are you know in bed or hanging around the doors, you know sniffing around for other stories, don't need to be doing that at the end of the movie. They're just like heads down, bum up, knocking out stories, having the sources, knowing how to just sort of take down you know, the, the Republican party and Nixon and this entire you know, crim- criminal conspiracy that surrounded him. Yeah. Now the other thing that I just wanted to point out, um, <laughs> that kind of begins kind of shortly after this minute finishes, which is, um, this film is obsessed with stationary and physical media. <laughs> and I love that. Love I it. love, I love all the close ups on notepads and handwriting and, even the way that um, when you see like printed newspaper articles, it's just like, it's like, I don't know, like, if you said to a cinema photographer, give me the, give me the hottest focus on a newspaper <laughs> article you can do, you know, like this film, like the way that they, the close ups and the way that they shoot all of the, the paper and everything, it's just, it's so beautifully done, and I think it, it kind of creates this this magnificent kind of visual paper paper trail, which I think, you know, the number of notes these guys must have had, you know, I think it it, it kind of expresses what's going on in a really interesting way. Um, but every time there was a close up of, of, of you know a piece of physical media or stationery or something like that, I was just like, oh, this is magnificent! Like this is just. This is just beautiful stuff. Um, well, I you know, think I think the part of this, the job of this show, will be for me, and I'm going to obsessively do it because I know I do it on every rewatch. Is like trying to spot the names of the books, like the books that are on people's <laughs> yeah, yeah, desks. Yeah. Like I try and read them and say, well, "What are they reading?" Because maybe I should try and like seek it out. Um, so we'll definitely do that, and I'm I'm glad that I have a, an ally in that cam with you. Look, guys, oh, yeah, let's try and make a list. The, and maybe yeah. do like a, all the presidents, men, like reading list <laughs> or something like that. Now. There's only one other question I've got for you, Blake. And I was when I was doing research for this, you know, obviously when you type it in, you know, soon the top Google search is going to be all the president's minutes. So sorry, <laughs> the film or the president's men, you're going to have to get, you're going to get pushed down in the Google rankings. But Google started doing this thing where it kind of summarizes, like uh, it, it kind of gives you a little bit of a summary on the side of like everything to do with the film, who's in it. And they kind of have a little column for reviews. So it'll give you like the Rotten Tomatoes rating, the IMDb rating. And they also include the reviews from Roger Ebert's website. They do. The most frustrating thing about All the President's Men is that according to his review, he gave it a 3.5 out of 4. He did. Now, 
what, okay, and I, I'd be interested to hear from other guests as well as yourself, is what do you think was the point for it that, that annoyed him? <laughs> <I'm gonna laughs> whoever, whoever's review that is. But it, I just I, look at it and I'm like, because like, I reckon when people review films, half stars are the biggest fuck you you can ever do in a review, right? <laughs> anyone that operates, I'm sorry, I know a lot of people like to do it, but if anyone that operates in half stars, uh, like, just rethink it. Um, you know, star star ratings are already silly as they are. But if you're going to give something three point five out oh of four, God. like I, the whole review has to be about the point five. I don't care. Like you <laughs> like the movie, but tell me why it was point five off. So I'm really curious as this to is, why. This is giving me editorial flashbacks when we used to work <laughs> together a lot on the website. Is that if Cam ever saw I did a four and a half? I, I reckon if we were like editing each other's stuff and giving each other feedback, it, it, it would just be in all caps, explain yourself. Like what is going on with this half star? Firstly, I love I'd it. Like, Secondly, I'd be, like ben, I'd be like Ben Bradley. I'd be like, explain to me why. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't, he's, like, he's like red pen. You don't have it. You don't have it. Just cross <laughs> it out. No, nah, you don't have it. Go back to the drawing board. So people have been listening to the show. Uh, you you're, I'm so glad we arrived at this point because at the beginning of every show, usually we read an excerpt out of the Elder President's Pen book and there's going to be lots of readings and, and you know pertinent articles that uh, are just sort of part of the way that we introduce every single episode. But I'm just going to announce to you, Cam, now as the guest that you listening... There is going to be a reading from Roger Ebert's uh, yeah. the President's Man uh, review uh, from the 1st of January, 1976. And I'm going to uh, hopefully, uh, uh, set, you know, laser in on uh, the explanation of that half star. But, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as always. And thank you so much for being a part of the show. And I'm sure that you'll be back um, along this fun journey with me again. But uh, as always, I, 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 I always know there's going to be something great from you to finish. And uh, this, one was, uh, this one was no different. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Blake. Great chat. Uh, four out of five uh, stars. <laughs> no half stars. Cam, thank you so much for being a part of the show once again. Guys, if you want to follow Cam, it's at MrCamW on Twitter. He writes for a litany of places and has a lot of appearances, so that is the absolute best place to find him. Thank you so much again for listening to all the President's Minutes and anything on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and producer of Increment Vice, as well as everything that's been happening on the One Heat Minute Productions feed. If you want to follow me, simply go to at Minute on Instagram and on Twitter, or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, the amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine, but please subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.